0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great. I'm grateful to be with you. I was not expecting uh, to be preaching this Sunday, uh, but as God's providence would have it, um, as we are reaching the end of our series called Fear Not, Gospel Truths for Anxious Times, I was thrown into a little bit of a tailspin this week as I was asked to preach last minute. And I am so very, very grateful for the opportunity, but it was very, very wonderful, one, uh, that the Lord took me to James as I was working through my own sense of fear and my own own sense of anxiety about this morning, but also I think it'd be um, unbelievably providential of God uh, for him to take us to James this morning as we finish this series of Fear Not, Gospel Truths for Anxious Times. And uh, as, we, as we look at the passage this morning, I want to give you guys just a little bit of background as to why the book of James was written and how it kind of connects to some of the things that we may be experiencing in our own lives this holiday season You see, the letter of James was written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. And by the time James had written this letter, he had moved from being a skeptic, someone who really considered his older brother Jesus to be a person who was insane, to being a pillar among the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And the reason that James wrote this letter revolves around the fact that there was a man by the name of Stephen who was stoned in Jerusalem as the first Christian martyr. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that after Stephen's stoning, there was a great persecution that broke out in Jerusalem against the Christians. And that those Christians had to flee the city and ended up settling in the surrounding regions of Jerusalem. And it's no doubt, at least in my mind, that these Christians would have experienced significant hardship in their lives. Their experience of a new normal would have been unbelievably intense as they had to start living as refugees in the surrounding regions. And so James, as one of their leaders, is writing into this situation of all the various trials that they might experience. And he's writing to encourage them and equip them so that they would be shaped not by the world around them, but by their faith in the gospel. And while you and I don't share exactly the same experiences that these Christians were having, we don't have to pretend that this last year has been incredibly difficult. In fact, I would argue that if the last year has taught us anything, it is often that our response to hardship is often shaped by our fear in our circumstances more than our faith in the gospel. And yet God calls us to endure our trials faithfully and even joyfully. And James is going to speak to how we can do that. How can we actually be shaped by our faith in the gospel and not by our fears? And here's what he's going to show us. He's going to say that we can be and we will be shaped by our faith when we actually embrace God's plan for our lives and remember his purpose, receive his wisdom, and rejoice in his promises when we are in the midst of our trials. And so that is where we're headed this morning as we dive into the book of James. That as we embrace God's plan for our life, how can we remember God's purposes and receive his wisdom and rejoice in his promises when we are suffering and going through hardship. But before we dive in, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us in Christ. We appreciate that you have continued to allow us to gather as your people in person. We thank you that you have given us so much uh, opportunity to worship you and to fellowship with one another even in the midst of these hard times. Heavenly Father, I ask that by Your Spirit, You would be illuminating our hearts as we spend time in Your Word. Help us to understand what it means to be shaped by our faith in the midst of trial. And help us especially to remember Your purposes, to receive Your wisdom, and ultimately to rejoice in Your promises more than our circumstances. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So James, writing into these various trials, as he calls them, these hardships that the Christians uh, surrounding Jerusalem are now facing, he says that if you remember God's purpose in the midst of your trials, that you will be shaped by your faith and not by your fear. I want you guys to look really quickly at verse 2. And here's what James says. He says, Consider it, count it, all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. In verses 2 through 4, what James is doing is he is saying that when you remember God's purposes, you will be shaped by your faith. And he emphasizes two aspects of God's purposes. The first thing that he points out is God's aim in the midst of your trials. And the second thing that he points out is the process by which that aim is achieved. Look back in verse 4. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to notice in verse 4 that James is saying that God's aim in the midst of our hardships and in the midst of our struggles is our perfection. That word that is translated perfection is a Greek word that literally means brought to its intended end. Or maybe a better way to understand that is fully mature. And I want you to notice that James emphasizes that point three different times. He says, Let steadfastness have its full effect that you will be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And within the context of what we'll talk about in just a moment, probably the best way to understand what James is getting at is to have in our minds the idea of a masterpiece, a work of art, a piece of fine jewelry or quality craftsmanship, that God is bringing your life and your character to a point that it is perfect, that it will be complete, lacking in nothing. And we hear this, this language uh, echoed in Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul there in Ephesians says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That God is being very, very intentional about what he wants to do through the trials that you are facing. He wants to shape us. He wants to mold us into the image of Christ. But how is this perfection achieved? Is it achieved through Bible study? Is it achieved through Sunday school? Is it achieved through youth group? No. Actually, James says the primary way that God works in our lives, the primary process that God brings about that perfection is not Christian education. It's pain, it's trials, and it's hardship. I want you to look back here in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, produces steadfastness. That word testing carries with it the idea of purifying precious metal or the strengthening of steel and the way that precious metal is purified is through fire carefully monitored and expertly utilized fire and this exact same language again is used elsewhere in the bible to describe this process in first peter chapter 1 peter writes in this trial, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Peter... Peter is emphasizing the value of the faith and the character that God has given you in Christ. And James is focusing more on that process. Because what James says, if you go back to verse 3, is he's saying, when we experience the hardship that God is utilizing, that fire in our lives, it is producing in us a character trait that was not present before. I want you to notice here the word that says testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this Greek word that is translated produced is probably better understood as worked in or maybe worked out, depending on your perspective. Because this is exactly how Paul talks about it in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That makes sense in the context of trials. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like an expert craftsman, God is carefully using your pain to purify and to shape you into the image of Christ. And perhaps I would say probably one of the most amazing examples of this in our lifetime is the life and the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata. For those of you who are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry and her testimony, this will ring true. But for those of you that aren't familiar, Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman who founded a ministry to help out with medical missions and evangelism all over the world, uh, particularly those children that have great needs in the area of being disabled. Because Johnny, her Herself is disabled. When Johnny Erickson Tata was a teenager, she went swimming one afternoon and dove off of a, of a relatively high point and broke her neck coming into the lake. And Johnny prayed for years that the Lord would heal her. And in 2019, she wrote an article about what she had learned through this trial and fire of being rendered disabled. Here's what she said. For the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I have been daily dying to myself and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. I have learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue me from my sin. Our physical aches and our pain and our broken relationships aren't God's ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they are symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our sin and to grow in our love for Him. What an amazing, amazing testimony. To see the fires of Johnny's trial and hardship as she died to herself and rose with Christ produce in her a steadfastness that is literally world famous. Drawing attention not to Johnny, but to Christ what does this mean for our lives? How do we embrace this remembering of God's purposes in our lives? And I think it helps maybe in having a little bit of a shift in our perspective. Instead of approaching our hardships as mountains that we need to climb or waters that we need to make it through, see your trials as God's workshop in your life. Because when you approach your trials in that way, it actually gives you an opportunity when you are suffering to say, Wow, God is actually giving me an opportunity to clearly see where he is at work in my life. And so whether you are stressed out because of this pandemic, or you are experiencing the pain of personal or family or financial struggles, know this. God is using that exact struggle that you are thinking of and will continue to use the specific things that you will struggle with to skillfully and carefully purify you so that the character of Christ might shine in you. It's a hard truth, but it's so good to embrace that. But let's be honest. Even if we remember that God's aim is our perfection and that he uses the process of pain to bring that to fruition, it's true that often we don't discover the character of Christ in the midst of our trials. Instead, what we discover are our impurities. We discover our fears, we discover, discover our idols, and we discover our foolishness. And that's why James continues and he says, we don't just need to simply remember God's purposes, but we need to receive God's wisdom. Look in verses 5 through 8. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom in Scripture simply means the ability to live well in God's world, especially when things are complicated. Okay, there are many issues in life that are really black and white. And these are things that God's Word speaks directly to. But there are also a lot of other aspects of life that are very gray. That are very confusing. That God's Word doesn't speak directly to. And what we learn from this experience in our lives is that being wise is not the same thing as being right. Right? Because God doesn't just want you to be someone who is right. He wants you to be someone who is also wise. What that means is, is that being wise means knowing how to live like Christ, even when things aren't crystal clear. But I want you to notice here what James says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... As if to remind you that the confusion in the midst of complicated circumstances is normal. Or rather, to be expected. You're not supposed to know how to do everything all the time. What James is pointing out is that when we experience anxiety and stress in the midst of our trials, we are being shown that we need to receive wisdom from God. Look here, really quickly, and back in verse 5. Because James locates that wisdom with God. And James communicates that looking like Christ in the midst of our trials does not originate with us. It's given to you as a gift. And so when you feel like you don't have the resources to address the trials in your life, that's because that's true. You don't have the resources in your life to address all of the hardships in your life. Wisdom belongs to God. But what's amazing is that as James continues on this point, he identifies two aspects of God's character that should be really encouraging to you when you're at the end of your rope. The first thing that James says is that God gives generously to those who come to him for wisdom. God is not only wealthy in wisdom, He is also generous. He loves to lavish people with His wisdom. In the midst of our poverty that is so acutely felt during hardships, we can know that God's character is one that He actually desires to fill our cup And the second thing that James says is that God gives that wisdom generously to all without reproach. I love that phrase, without reproach. And honestly, this is incredible. Because it shows that God is way, way different than I am. God does not look down or cast judgment on those who come to him for wisdom. God is not a person that stands back and says, okay, now you finally come to me when you need help. And fine, I will give you this because you've asked for it, but let's be honest, you kind of owe me one. That is not the God that loves us. That is not the God who we worship. This God gives wisdom without reproach. And so, when you are at the end of yourself and you are filled with the awareness of your sinfulness, of your foolishness, of your unworthiness, know that you can approach God for wisdom because He is not only generous, He is compassionate. But I want you to notice here as we look at verse 6 that James goes into something really important for us to wrestle with as we think about approaching God for wisdom. Because not only does God give wisdom, but wisdom must be sought by us and in faith. James in verse 6 turns a corner and he says, Let him, the one who's approaching God for wisdom, ask in faith. And that phrase, asking in faith, it means to trust God wholeheartedly for what you need. And to clarify this, James contrasts asking in faith with the word doubting. Do you see that in verse 6? He says, ask in faith with no doubting. And what the problem is, is that in our English Bibles and even in our English language, the word doubting has a pretty broad range of meaning. Some of which James doesn't actually mean. Sometimes when we use the word doubting, we mean there's not enough evidence for us to come to a conclusion about something. And so we just need more evidence to, you know, deal with the doubt in our lives. Other times when we talk about doubting, we mean the ability to ask questions and to probe deeper into the complexities of a situation, if I don't quite understand, I, I'm, not, I'm doubting whether or not I understand that correctly. James is saying here, is not the inability to ask questions, or the inability to ask, uh, to, to, to come to issues of faith with a sense of curiosity. But rather, what James is saying here is he's linking the word doubting with the idea of a wave that is driven and tossed by the sea. And later on in the book of James, probably the best way to think about this word doubting is when it is translated double-minded. James says that person... The person who is not necessarily doubting in the English way we think about that, but the person who is double-minded when they come to God should not expect to receive anything. Double-mindedness is hedging your bets. Instead of looking to God so that you might look like Christ in the midst of your struggles, a double-minded person looks to God simply to get the idol that they want. To use God to achieve that comfort that you want, that control that you desire, that security or that sense of significance that you want. Using God to get something else, that is what double-mindedness is. And what's really important I think for us all to wrestle with is that when we experience hardship, especially incredible hardship. There is a tendency in the human heart to collapse the universe in around your problem and for your trial to be the only story you can see. And what that does is that it starts to kind of pit yourself against God and it demands God to serve you your passion of choice in the midst of what you are doing. And James is saying God does not play that game. Probably the most striking example of this is in Ezekiel chapter 14. Now Ezekiel is being written when the nation of Israel is in exile. So they are experiencing trials and hardships. Okay? Pastor Mark has been preaching from Isaiah and talking about constantly how there was going to be a time when Israel was crying out to the Lord for comfort and that he would provide it. But I want you to notice what he says in Ezekiel about those who come to him just looking to get their idols. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all of your abominations." If our intention is to get our idols from God instead of going to Him for wisdom to look like Christ, know that God only wants to talk to you about your idols. God only wants to see you purified from your sin in those moments. Because it is often in the fires of our trials that idolatry and double-mindedness in us is revealed. Trials reveal so clearly what our functional saviors are. And if this is where you are right now, I don't want you to despair. Because remember what James has already said: turn to Christ. God is compassionate, and God is generous. The Holy Spirit uses these moments in our lives to purify our hearts. Confess your sin. Repent of your double-mindedness because it is in those moments that God God gives more and more grace. He does not look on you with reproach and He will generously then give you the wisdom that you need to look like Christ in the trials that you are experiencing. In fact, it is by turning from our double-mindedness that we are enabled by the Spirit to not just receive God's wisdom, but to supernaturally rejoice more in, our, in the promises of God than in our present circumstances. I want you guys to look one last time here to verses 9 through 12. In verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In verse 12, James explicitly describes God's promise to you and I who are in Christ. He describes it as the crown of life. And this phrase, crown of life, it's used also in Revelation chapter 2, is shorthand for the kingdom of Christ. Often, when you and I think about our salvation, we tend to think about it in a very personal sense. We tend to think about the fact that we have been forgiven of our sin and we will go to heaven when we die. Yet, God's actual promises to us in Scripture are so much bigger than that version of Christianity. Because not only have you been saved from your sin, but God has made you... A member of this kingdom of priests who will actually live and reign with Christ when He returns. That is your future if you have placed your hope and your trust in Jesus. And it's that promise that you will be delivered from death and brought into this amazing kingdom to live and to reign with Christ. The crown of life placed on your head It's that promise that will shape more than anything else our ability in the midst of trials to walk in faith and not in fear. And here's why. Because when that promise is what is primarily in your mind in the midst of hardship, then you can actually rejoice when you are humbled and when you are weak. Jump up to verses 9 through 10. Let the lowly brother exalt or sorry let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in, in his humiliation. In verses 10 and 11 James turns to the rich, okay? The rich are those who have something in their lives that is valuable from a worldly sense, right? They're talented people. They have more money than we do. They have a position of influence. They have some type of authority. And James says, "Rejoice Rich, when you are humiliated. That doesn't make any sense. Why in the world should somebody rejoice when they lose something in the midst of trials? When they lose their job? When they lose their influence? When their family breaks apart? When they experience trauma? Why in the world would anybody think, I should rejoice right now? And that's because of what is happening in that moment. James answers by comparing the possessions of the rich to wildflowers. And he does this to show exactly how transient those possessions are. That your job and your influence, that your health, all of these things that we might look to, that we long to possess, are just like wildflowers. They are Unbelievably transient. And if we rest in those things and find our joy in those things alone, then just like they will fade away, so too will we fade away. That's what James is saying to the rich. And it can be easy to try to kind of over spiritualize this, but I want you to hear how James is echoing the hard sayings of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. Okay? If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. That's in Matthew 19. Now, Jesus nor James are saying that wealth or opportunity, talent or success are wrong, evil or to be avoided. Here's what they're saying. No one gets to wear their own crown in the kingdom of Christ. You don't get to bring your achievements into the kingdom of God. Only Christ's achievements will be exalted in the kingdom of Christ. No one gets to wear their own crown in the kingdom of Christ. And there's no better place to see this played out than in Revelation chapter 4. And the twenty-four elders Fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives and reigns forever. They cast their crowns before the throne and said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, why would you rejoice when you lose something? Because God is using that momentary trial to remove your faith in a temporary thing so that He can prepare you for an eternal weight of glory. Which is why when James turns to the poor brother, the lowly brother, he says, hey, boast in your exaltation. And I actually love how this can be translated just literally. If you just read the Greek as it was laid out, it would say, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The brother in humble circumstances, glory in your high position. What an unbelievable juxtaposition. Humble circumstances equals glorious high position. Because God really does exalt the humble. Because God actually likes lavishing His grace on those who know that they need it. He purifies those people. He strengthens those people in their trials. He pours the wise character of Christ into those people's lives. And he prepares those people for the new heavens and the new earth. Later on in James, in chapter 2, this is what James will say, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen the poor in this world? As we confessed earlier, God really is gracious to the poor in spirit and close to the brokenhearted My favorite description of this to to illustrate it comes from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's fantastic. You should read it. The book is about a man who kind of goes on a tour of heaven. He like gets on a tour bus and the tour bus takes him up to heaven and he goes through all of these different experiences with a guide kind of showing him what heaven is like compared to the place that he had just come to. And while this character is in heaven and he's being kind of shown around by this guide, there begins to, to see, he begins to see a parade on the horizon making his way closer and closer to the character. And Lewis describes it like this. He says, First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, those who danced and scattered flowers, And then on the left, and then on the right, at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes. Boys upon one hand, and girls upon the other. And if I could remember their singing, and write down the notes, no man who read uh, that score would ever grow sick or old. And between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done for. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of this woman's face. And his character turns and says, Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. And that man's guide says, Not at all, he said. It is someone you have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, She she seems to be a, a person of particular importance. She is one of the great ones, my guide said. But you have heard that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two quite different things. What a great line to hold in your heart. Fame in heaven and fame on earth are two quite different things. When you are suffering in the midst of your struggles... Do not compare the sufferings of today with the glories of tomorrow. That is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It is not worth comparing the sufferings of today with the glories that will be revealed in the children of God tomorrow. So what does this mean? It means that if we are going to be shaped by our faith in this coming season, which is looking to be difficult, it means that we need to actually embrace God's plan for our lives. And here's how the author of Hebrews describes embracing God's plan for our lives. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to be shaped by your faith and not by your fear, then you need to set your eyes on Jesus. And as we enter this hard holiday season, remember God's purpose in your trial to purify you. Receive God's wisdom in the midst of your trials because He is giving it to you graciously, generously, and compassionately. But ultimately, rejoice more in God's promise than in your circumstances. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might follow the author and the perfecter of your faith, that you'll pick up your cross daily, that you will endure with joy, and that one day, you too, will receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your promises are so good. They are so glorious and we thank you for them. We thank you even more that you are faithful to bring them about. That you are strong and able to carry us through our trials and to use the fire of our hardships to purify us into the character of Christ. To give us the wisdom that we need to look like Christ in the midst of foggy and confusing situations. And ultimately, you have given us something to rejoice in far greater than our present sufferings or our present circumstances. Lord Jesus, thank you for not just being the author and perfecter of our faith, but identifying with us so that as we come to you, you know our struggles deeper than we do. Help us now as we continue to worship you throughout the week to turn to you in the midst of our struggles. In Jesus' name, amen.